just want to say hey to you. If you're visiting with us today, my name is Kyle Jones. I'm the, uh, one of the pastors here, the lead pastor here, and uh, just want to say thank you for coming. Um, as Alan mentioned, you guys just make yourself at home. Enjoy yourself this morning, and if you need anything, just ask anybody in a gray t-shirt that says serve. They'll help you out with whatever you need, but thank you for choosing to worship with us. Um, so, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. This is the final week of our sermon series that we've called The Dearest Place on Earth. Uh, so next week we'll be back in John. We'll get to finish it out over the next uh, several weeks. And um, the, the title of this series, though, The Dearest Place on Earth, was taken from a quote by an old preacher named Charles Haddon Spurgeon uh, in which he was talking about the church and he was talking about how it's imperfect. It's, it's not perfect. He said, if you were to find a perfect one, you would ruin it by joining it. All right. And, uh, and so what he was getting at, though, is he says, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. And he's talking about two believers, that our churches ought to be dear to us. And so we've just entered this series with that mindset. What does it take to make a church dear? What does it take to become a one of the dearest places on earth. And so we've answered some different questions over the course of the last few weeks. Uh, if you want just a, an introductory into who we are as a church, maybe you're visiting today, then you can certainly go back and, and listen to those on our podcast. But uh, one of them was, uh, the first week we answered, what is the church? So we just talked about the church universal. What is the, the church uh, of Jesus Christ, right? The one that He's established by His death and resurrection and by saving people. Uh, and then we talked about how that affects who we are as a local church. Uh, and then we went into, on the next week, we answered the question, what are elders? So the question we're really after is, is there a specific structure that a church ought to have? And the answer is yes, there is. And so we looked at what are elders and how do they uh, help protect and guide the body um, that they're entrusted to. And then uh, last week we answered, does membership matter? So does local church membership matter? Uh, that was a fun one. I think it was encouraging. And uh, anyway, and then today I want to talk about or answer the question, ask and answer, what is our mission? Uh, so at the beginning of the series, we announced, though, that January, and Patricia mentioned it earlier, that January marks uh, 10 years since this church launched. Amen? So let's give God a hand clap for that. This is good stuff. So in many ways, it really does seem to have gone by very quickly. Uh, some of you who are here today were in in the very beginning stages of that. And, and so maybe it feels a bit quick, but as with anything in life, what we know is, is that ten year, over the course of 10 years, a lot can happen. And so a lot has happened within the life of the church, but also within the lives that are in the church, right? Within the people that are in the church through the years. But this, there's this one truth that just rings out uh, clear as a bell. And that is, God is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. Amen? If anything ought to be talked about about our church over the last 10 years, it is God's steadfast love. It is His faithfulness to His people, and more specific to our context, to this people, to these people. Amen? And so we are grateful for that. So what we're going to do over the course of the year is we're going to release... Uh, some video interviews. We're going to be hitting some of you up, and if you're interested in doing this, that'd be great too. You want to volunteer? That'd be awesome. We're going to interview some people over the next uh, few, several, well, over the year, and uh, release those interviews 
online just about the church, about how the church has affected uh, your family and, and some of the things you hope to see within the church in the coming years and, and just questions like that. But it gives you a chance to share your story about how New Life Community Church has impacted your family. So today I want to share with you just a clip of what we did this week with Seth and Lauren Penner and, and their family. And, and so Seth and Lauren were in on the very beginning stages of this church, as were several of you here. And, uh, and so this is a little piece of their story. You can catch the rest of the video online later today. But y'all direct your attention here. Amen. Will you guys just join me in, in celebrating what God's done here over the years? Amen. Again, you can catch the rest of that video. Seth and Lauren get a little bit more personal throughout the video about what ways specifically God has impacted their family. I encourage you to, to watch that and share it. Uh, let people kind of get a glimpse into what new life looks like. Uh, so, let's do this. Before we get going, let me just pray uh, because today is a little bit special, right? Today is just kind of the day we've marked as our 10-year celebration. So let me just pray that God would... Uh, what we say around here and what we've kind of been saying in the elder room over the last few weeks is, is, is just, God, would you guard us and guide us for the next 100 years? Amen. That you would set us on a trajectory that, that is impactful for longer than any of us will be here. Amen. So that kids and grandkids and whoever else can experience what we're experiencing and beyond. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We are humbled, uh, Lord, that you would care for for your people in such ways. Uh, Lord, through uh, some really difficult times in the life of this church, through some really magnificent uh, highs in the life of this church, you have proven over and again your faithfulness and your steadfast love toward us. And so, Father, we just sit here in awe of that, and we just offer up a, a heartfelt thank you. Thank you for what you've done. God, I, I thank you uh, for bringing me to this place four and a half years ago. Lord, I thank you for the team of elders that are here now, for the, the ministers and the serve team leaders and the home group leaders and, and, and then the people here who serve one another, who love one another, who are growing in their faith. And so, God, we just ask that you would continue, please, Lord, to, to keep us in your way, to guard us, to protect us from outside forces, evil, that would want to derail the plan for this place. And we pray, Lord, that you would guide us in the right steps, that you would keep us on the right track, that you would keep us gospel-centered, that we would remain focused on Christ and Him crucified and what that means for our lives. And that in that, Lord, we would grow in our faith in Jesus Christ, that we would grow in our love for one another, and that we would begin to teach others how to do the same. Father, we love you. Again, it's with great thanks we pray today. Amen. Amen. Wow. So, here's uh, what we want to talk about today. What is our mission? So, uh, a truth about this is that without a mission, who knows what the church may evolve into? All right, who, who knows what we might become? So I shared this story uh, probably about a year ago as we were talking about just the mission of the church in a little bit different way than we are today, but I think the story's still significant, so I wanted to share it with you again today. Uh, in 1881, there was a lady named Sarah Winchester. Sarah Winchester inherited more than $20 million after her husband, William Winchester, died from tuberculosis. She also received nearly 50% ownership in her husband's company. 
Winchester Repeating Arms Company. Maybe you've heard of that before. This gave her a daily income of $1,000, which is equivalent to roughly $25,000 per day now. How many say, I could live on that probably. Yeah, right? I, I could probably figure out how to make that work. Um, reports say, though, that shortly after her husband's death, in, in kind of a state of great depression, she began to be, be convinced that um, the money was haunted by the spirits of those who have been killed by Winchester rifles. Uh, and so she believed the only way to appease them was to move from her home in Connecticut to California and build a house for them. So in 1884, she purchased this house in the Santa Clara Valley and began building her mansion. Carpenters were hired and worked on the house day and night until it became a seven-story mansion. She didn't use an architect. And she didn't uh, have any plans or design for it. She just added on to the building uh, in a haphazard, kind of whimsical way. And so the, the home now contains numerous oddities, such as doors and stairs that go nowhere, right? They, they just end uh, windows overlooking other rooms, uh, stairs with, with odd-sized risers, so the stairs don't even make sense. Uh, there are roughly 161 rooms in the home, including 40 bedrooms, two ballrooms, one that's completed, one that's unfinished, as well as 47 fireplaces, over 10,000 panes of glass, 17 chimneys with evidence of at least two more, two basements, and three elevators. I don't know how you have two basements, but that's amazing. Miss Winchester property, Miss Winchester's property was about 162 acres at one time, but the estate has since been reduced to four and a half acres, the minimum necessary to contain the house and its nearby outbuildings. Now, there was only one working toilet for Miss Winchester. Yikes. But all other restrooms were just simply decoys to confuse the spirits, you know, because they have to potty too, I guess. Uh, this is also the reason why she slept in a different room each night. That's weird. There was no rhyme nor reason to the design of the property. If Miss Winchester wanted a set of stairs or a doorway or a bathroom, she just added that to the carpenter's to-do list. Now, the design is so bizarre that in 2016, a room was discovered that no one even knew existed. So we hear this, and, and we're a bit puzzled. Like, why would someone waste all that money on something like that? And, and then, why wouldn't someone use an architect, right? Like, if you're going to build a massive home, at least have a plan for it. Yet, we are guilty at times of employing the same whimsical behavior in our own lives. Maybe in the way that you go about your marriage, or the way that you're raising your children, or the way that you think about your career, or so on and so forth, the way you spend your money, right? That was one that, that I struggle with. Um, truth is, bringing it back to here, without a plan, you never know what something may evolve into, what it might turn out to be. Now, Miss Winchester's story reminds me a little bit of how I started out as pastor here. Bless the hearts of the men uh, and women who called me to come here. Um, I had a bunch of different ideas. I had a bunch of different past habits, things that I had picked up along the way in many different churches uh, that kind of contributed to a sort of local church version of the Winchester Mansion, right? Just things that didn't make sense, but it just like, let's implement that, or let's do this, or let's go about this this way, really just because I'd seen it done so many different ways within churches. And I'm not sure what this church would look like today had I continued down that road, and thankfully we'll never know. Uh, the one thing I did know 
uh, and, and I just praise God for His grace in this, I was aware of how little I knew. Right, Even in the things I thought I had right, I was aware of how little I, I knew. But, but I did know this, I needed God's guidance to pastor His people faithfully. Like I I'm, was going to need His help to join in on this team of elders that was here and begin to pastor faithfully. So about one year in, I began to be troubled by the fact, maybe a little less, but somewhere around one year in, I was troubled by the fact that I had so many different ideas, so many different habits, and no clear direction on what a local church ought to look like or what we ought to be, other than loving towards people, right? Which is a really good direction, but like I said, I was adding a bunch of stuff to that. And so as I began to pray through those things, um, I remember God kind of leading me or burdening my heart to begin to preach through books of the Bible rather so than just topical sermons all the time. Just begin to preach faithfully through biblical books of the Bible. I think as much for me as for, as, as for the people here. And, and so I began preaching through books of the Bible. Uh, within a few months later, I was studying through, uh, I was sitting at a table, uh, we were in our old building still, and, um, and it was just lonely out there. So every now and then I would go to the library and I'd just go upstairs and I would sit at a table up there and I would just study God's Word and, and write sermons up there. It was kind of a, a neat place to be. And, um, and so I remember sitting at a table on the second floor of the library studying to preach through Ephesians, and I came across Ephesians 1.15. Ephesians 1.15, you can look at it there in your Bible. He says this, Paul writes, he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Let's just stop there. And I begin to read that over and over and over, and I just begin to imagine a church that the, well, I begin to imagine that this is what God wants for His church. He wants it to be full of saints, first of all, uh, who, uh, which means that they are people who have faith in the Lord Jesus and love for one another. That those become kind of the two marks of who they are. And so as I looked into Paul's statement, I realized that he says something very similar in Romans 1 and Colossians 1 and 1 Thessalonians 1 and 1 Thessalonians 3 and in Philemon. And that's when our mission became clear to me. And I just begin to write it out. We exist to glorify God by making disciples who grow in their faith in Jesus and their love toward one another. And I remember texting Matt and Seth, you know, we had a group chat going. I just remember texting them in there and saying, oh, man, guys, what, what do you think about this as a mission statement? Here's how I came across this. And, and I remember that with, with their endorsement, you know, they were glad to see it, glad to see some direction, probably a bit frustrated we didn't have any yet. And, uh, I, and we begin using that as a mission statement. Now, here's the thing about mission statements. They're only as useful as you make them useful, right, or as they affect the mission. Uh, if it's just a statement to print on mugs, or just a statement to print on t-shirts, to put on the front of a worship guide, uh, then it's pretty useless. Now, I probably should add that a mission statement for a local church specifically had better come from or be based upon God's Word. Amen? We, we, we better receive our direction from the Lord. And so from Scripture, we know this. And so it's not a, it's not a harebrained, it's not even really that I created this mission statement, just reading Scripture. We know that from Scripture, the mission of the church is to glorify God and make disciples. Um, so in Ephesians 3.21, you read, To Him be the glory in the church throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. In Psalm 115.1, he said, the writer there says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your, name we give, uh, to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. And in Matthew 28.18, Jesus comes to the disciples at the, after the resurrection, and He says this, and this is a great commission text, right? 
He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, that's not going to happen if the point of it is not to glorify Christ or to glorify God. Amen? So, so, so we know again, it's to glorify God. But he says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So therefore, at the core of what the Bible says about the local church, and we've looked at this over the last several weeks, I'm not going to beat this to death, but I just want to catch some of us up. The mission of the church is to glorify God and make disciples. That's what we exist to do at our core. So when the Scriptures talk about making disciples, though, it's really talking about two things. One, it's talking about telling unbelievers about the good news of the gospel so that we may see people converted. Amen? So that unbelievers may come to know that Jesus Christ is Lord, to trust Him in that way, to follow Him, to surrender their lives to Him. Well, so when, the, but when Jesus says, go and make disciples, first thing He's talking about is go and make some converts. Go and make people who love Me. But it doesn't end there. In fact, that's kind of the beginning stage of discipleship. You get your new life. And then as we see throughout the New Testament, a disciple is also defined by a continual growing in their faith in Jesus and their love for one another. And then there's a specific thing about teaching others to do the same. So we can boldly say then from Scripture that it's okay and we exist to glorify God by making disciples who grow in their faith in Jesus and their love toward one another. And this is how we landed there. Now, for the remainder of our time, I want to offer some praise to God and to you all who embody this growth in faith, who embody this growth in love uh, for what we've seen just in past work, right? What we've seen up to this point. But I also want to give us some things to be praying for uh, about the, the stuff that's in front of us presently and then the things that lie ahead in our future as we press on here at New Life. So, the first thing is, is this. Praise God for the work He has done in us. Amen? So if you have your worship guide on the back part of that, you can take notes if you so choose. First thing we want to do is we want to praise God for the work He has done in us. So Ephesians 1, 15-16. Let me read 1, 15 again, and then we'll add 16 to it this time. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. It says, I do not cease to give thanks to you. Now, can I just stand before you and use Paul's words as a reflection of my own heart towards you today? Is that okay for me to do in, in this moment that, that as your lead pastor, nothing brings me greater joy than to hear of your growing faith in the Lord Jesus and your growing love towards one another. Thank you for, for striving to be faithful to God in all the areas of your life. I know that that is the work of God. It's the evidence of God's work in you. Um, maybe the better way to say it is by God's grace and His power at work in us, we are seeing the fruit of His Word being planted in us. Amen? It's beginning to bear fruit in your life, in your heart, and in the lives of those around you. So again, thank you. This church though, is not perfect. Can I get an amen? It's not filled with perfect people. Can I get another amen? Alright, so if we think we're perfect, we're in a mess of trouble. 
And so we talked a lot about that last week, about there's no sense in trying to wear a mask among God's people. It's, it's ludicrous to do so. To, to think that somehow I can contribute to God's plan for His church if I become the very best me possible and don't show anybody the nastiness in me. What a, what a terrible way to live. But what is true is that as we begin to invest ourselves in Christ, as we begin to, to turn to Him with our lives, we begin to see that He loves us more and more in spite of us. That, that even though we're sinful people, even though we're, we're wrestling with flesh as those who have been saved, there's this, these two natures, these two competing forces within us, and we're, we're wrestling with flesh, as Paul would say in Romans 7. That the Spirit of God bears witness in us that we are His people. And so what we can do is we can admit or confess sin. We can say, I don't have it all together. And know that that's okay because my salvation does not depend on me having it all together, praise God. It depends on Christ. It depends on His work and what He's done. And so it frees us then to become the most human ver- fully human version of ourselves that we can be. He, he says that He gives us life and life more abundantly. And I know that to be True, not as I hide my sin, but I, as I complain about those things and seek um, refuge in Christ. So, this church is not perfect. It will never be perfect, but it has become the dearest place on earth to many of us. Amen? Not only because of its contribution to our growing in faith, maybe, you know, the singing, uh, the worship time, the... Uh, the preaching, being in a home group, being in Celebrate Recovery, just the conversations outside of any of those things with fellow brothers and sisters in here, all of those things can contribute to your faith and your love for others. Serving on serve teams, all, all of that stuff is a way that we exercise our faith and our love toward one another. So it contributes to uh, that. It helps us grow in those things. But, but it also helps us to experience the faith and love of other people. And we begin to benefit from that in ways. My favorite way I've ever read this is in Philemon where Paul talks about uh, his heart being refreshed. His heart being refreshed by the love that he's observed in the saints. It's a lot like what Alan was was getting at here. What Alan was saying was, it's refreshing to my heart to be with you guys again. Amen? What What a beautiful statement we can make about people. It's not often that we would call people refreshing to our hearts, but in Christ, within His church, we can. This is what God does in us. So as I think about God's work here, I'm reminded then of this old hymn, and as I, as I just praise God, the hymn says this, praise, I won't sing it because, man, that'd be embarrassing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's the song of our hearts this morning as we reflect back. And I would say, New Life, let us not stop praying that God would continue to mark this place with people of deep faith in Jesus and a sincere love for one another. Amen? The second thing I think we see here is to pray for continued growth in the faith. Ephesians 1.17, Paul writes, he says, 
So he said, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. So that, that you would become by the Spirit's power in you, that you would, be, that you would not begin to know Christ more fully. Amen? That you would begin to see Him more clearly, know Him more fully, that that you would have the revelation of who He is. When we read John 1, we see that, that, that Jesus is God's glory revealed to us. And that as we get to know Christ more, as our faith in Christ is strengthened or deepened, we begin to know God more. Amen? Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Um, I love that when it talks about the glory of God being revealed to us, it says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. So when we're talking about knowing God more fully, we're talking about knowing His grace more fully. We're talking about knowing His truth more fully. We're talking about a deepening of faith that cannot be shaken by anything in this world. It's fascinating. It's, it's a movement. To grow in faith is a movement from eating spiritual milk to eating spiritual meat. So we've got a newborn in our house, Right? Three months old, Haddon, uh, yes, named after the preacher because I'm that dude, right? Uh, so Haddon um, is on milk right now. That's all we'll say about that. Uh, and so the other night at dinner, we're eating uh, some breakfast that Patricia had made, and we have the little sausage links, right? And so I take a sausage link, I just put it up to Haddon's mouth, and, and he just begins sucking on that thing, right? He's gnawing on it, he's enjoying it, it's good and right, and, and it, it, he enjoyed that. He wanted it. He would almost get mad if you took it from him. And um, somehow that relates to growing in our faith, going from spiritual milk to spiritual meat. Paul says that when I came to you, I had to address you with milk rather than with meat. Amen? Meaning that there are things, there are truths that I want you to know, but you still need milk. You're not ready for those yet. All right? And so there is this idea of we grow in our faith just like a child grows up and, begin, and is weaned off milk and begins to eat meat. That this is good for our spirits. This is good for who we are. And over and over throughout the New Testament, we are urged to do things like grow in the faith, to press on towards maturity in Christ, to put behind the old man and take on this new nature of Christ, to go from one degree of glory to the next, and so on and so forth. Growing in faith is then how we define sanctification. Now, sanctification is just a really fancy word for growing in faith, or, or from the, it's a fancy word for the ongoing, never-ceasing, on this side of glory process of yielding to God's Word and His Spirit in order to complete the development of Christ's character in us. This is what we're after, that God's character, the character of Christ, would be completed in us. Amen? Now, what this means is, is that we must continually ask God, as Paul writes here, that we would petition God, we would pray to Him, we would plead with Him to give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him so that we might become mature Christians, that we can go from milk to meat, that we can become like the tree planted by the streams that are mentioned in Psalm 1, verses 1-3, through 3, where, the, uh, where he writes, he says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of scoffers. But his delight, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. 
And on His law, He meditates day and night. It says here that when He does this, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that He does, He prospers. It's the goal of growing in faith. It's to be a firm tree planted by the streams of God that we would not wither or fade, but that we would be strengthened from now until the end of time. Amen? So as we pray to know God more, to grow in wisdom and knowledge and revelation, we can be sure, you can be sure that God will honor those prayers, that He will strengthen you accordingly. Remember Philippians 1 and chapter 2 where we read, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's Philippians 1.6, Philippians 2.18. He says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God is at work in you, folks. God, God desires to take you. If you're a believer, God wants to take you from spiritual immaturity into mature adulthood. Amen? That we would grow in that way. That we would become a more faithful, more, uh, more sincere follower of Jesus Christ. That we would grow in the knowledge and the wisdom of Him. I think then the third thing that we ought to pray, we praise God for the work He's done. We, we pray that He would continue to grow us in faith. We also pray for continued growth in love. Ephesians 1.18 is one of the more incredible things I've ever read in my life. He says there, he says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. That's heaven. Alright? That's heaven. But then, look at this. That you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. You have to notice what the verse says. The verse does not say that you may know what are the riches of His glorious inheritance for the saints, as we might expect, because it just talked about the hope that we have. So you might think, man, there's this glorious inheritance for the saints. There is. That's the hope, right? That's what we just read about. But he says it's in the saints. And the phrase there does not refer to our inheritance in Christ because that was the part right before it, but God's inheritance in you. In the saints, in His people. This is, this is an amazing truth that God should, should even look on us as a part of His great wealth, but He does. That something that He cannot wait to enjoy forever is, is your presence, the presence of His people, those who believe Him and trust Him and love Him and treasure Him above all else. He considers us great wealth because of what He has done in us and through us in Christ. His people are His treasure. Now, one of the really significantly massive, just amazing good truths or good news of this is that God deals with us as believers on the basis of our future, not our past. Wow. That, that when God... When, when you're saved, Romans tells us that those whom He justified, He also sanctifies. And those whom He sanctifies, He also uh, glorifies. So when, when God saves you, when He justifies you, meaning He, he takes you from being uh, spiritually dead to spiritually alive, he, he, he awakens your heart. He replaces your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Amen? Do you understand what I'm saying? He pronounces you right. 
because of the work of Christ, not your own. That, that means He justifies you. When that happens, you can be sure that you will also be glorified. That's the promise there, that those whom He justifies, He will also glorify. And so now as we're along the process of sanctification, we're growing in our faith, we're, we're growing in our love, we're, we're doing these things, we're, we're leaning into Christ, right? We're, we're putting away the old man, we're taking on more of Christ. That as we're doing that, we can trust that we won't be put to shame. Paul also writes in Romans that, that the hope that we have in Christ will not put us to shame. That it can be trusted. You can trust Christ. So the beautiful truth of this is, is that when you're saved, even though you wrestle with flesh and blood, e even though you battle against your own fleshly desires, I mean, even though you, you find yourself losing that battle at times, giving in to the desires of the flesh rather than doing what Christ commands, that if you love the Lord, if you believe in Him and trust Him as your Savior, God's going to bring you through those things. God's going to bring you into His presence one day and that He looks forward to doing that. That because of Christ's blood on you, God deals with you as though you already are. Amen? Not as you are now. Because of Christ. So what hope we have. A few examples from the Bible would be David. Adulterer, murderer, and a man after God's own heart. Remember a guy named Peter, right? Show up, uh, soldiers show up to arrest Jesus, pulls out a sword, slices a dude's ear off, denies Christ three times. And then when Christ returns, he tells Peter that you're going to be one of the rocks I build my church. He's going to be one of the apostles, right? One of the initial ones. How about Paul? He was Saul before he was Paul, before he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, before he traveled across the known world then. He was a persecutor of the church, murdering Christians, oversaw the death of Stephen, one of the most amazing martyr accounts we have in our Bible. But then he has this encounter with Christ. It's knocked off his horse, sees a light, who are you, Lord? And his life is forever changed. A new identity, just like that. He becomes the greatest missionary that Christianity has ever known. When, when the, the point is, when Christ hits your life, it doesn't matter what your past is. Christians live in a future tense. We're, Alan mentioned earlier, we're longing for a new world. We're, we're destined for it. We're, we're sojourners on our way to a new land. Our lives are, are controlled by what we will be when Christ returns, not by... Satan now. It says that we are no longer slaves to sin. It doesn't say we don't sin. It says we're not a slave to sin anymore. Before Christ, your nature is a slave to sin. There is nothing in you that would desire the goodness of God. But after Christ, after you're saved, you get a new nature. And now you become a slave to Christ. You begin, you're able to live now for Christ. So knowing that we, are his glory, that we are His glorious inheritance should lead us into a life of dedication and to devotion to Jesus Christ. A life of growing in faith, yes, but also a life of growing in love for one another. So I, I said all that to say this, that we grow in love as we realize how much God loves us. It has to start there. Otherwise, the love's not based on anything substantial. It may be based on your feelings or, or whatever you ate for breakfast that morning or how well someone's treating you. 
But once that goes away, you may decide, I don't like that person anymore. In fact, I hate that person. That's not Christian at all. A Christian's love is based on the love of Christ. Paul writes that you are to be tender-hearted towards one another, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's love. Love bears all things, hopes all things, believes all things. That's love. Love is action. Love is being there for one another. You don't grow in those things until you realize what God has done for you. That's when you begin to understand what real love is. The rest of it's phony mumbo-jumbo that the world has uh, tricked us into believing is love. So the response to growth in faith is that we ought to grow in our love for others. Growth in faith then is this inward transformation that shows us who Christ is, who God is, and that from there we grow in love as an outward transformation. As, as you grow in your understanding of God's love toward you, that He sent His Son to die for you and to save you from your sins, your heart is softened by His love and your love toward others can't help but grow. It's a reaction of that. As we love the Lord, we begin to love others. This is why Jesus said that all of the law and the prophets is, is summed up in these two commands, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength and your mind. And he said a second is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus takes it a step further for his disciples. He says that you are to love one another as I have loved you. And that the world will know that you are my disciples by the way you love each other. John says in 1 John that if you say you love the Lord and do not love your brother, then you are a liar. And the truth is not in you. It's massive. Love matters. We want to grow in love toward one another. Amen? So I say that we pray that God would do this. That, that He would reveal His love toward us in, more, uh, in a more deep way. That Paul, as Paul writes, he says, I pray that you would know how deep and how wide and how, how long the love of God is so that we grow in our love toward one another. The final thing I have for you is to pray to know God's power. Pray to know God's power. Let's look at verse 19 through 23. He says, and what, so he says, I pray that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put as head over all... Sorry. He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. You know what the beauty of the mission to glorify God by making disciples who grow in their faith and, and Jesus and their love toward one another is? It's that it is powered not by our own strength, but by the very power of God, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. As we see here in this text, His power is wielded for His people, not against them. That the makeup of God's for us power is astounding. First, we are told that the one who is for us is at the right hand of God. That the position of highest privilege given to Christ for all ages after His resurrection and ascension. Next, we see that as Jesus is in that honored position, God places all things in this world under His feet and gives Him authority over all. 
Finally, we are told the purpose of Christ's dominion is for the church. It's for His body, which not only reflects Him, but ultimately it says the church fills all in all. Meaning that as the church, filled by Christ, fills all creation as representatives of Christ, Christ fills us. Amen? It's a relationship of Him filling us and then us filling the world as His representatives. What a deal, right? I mean, this is incredible. Let me, let me be clear about what this means because maybe I'm not being. What this means for the church or for the body of Christ, for, for us here at New Life Community Church as a small piece of the larger body throughout the world is this, that God has raised Jesus from the dead and exalted Him to the highest position in the universe where Christ now reigns over all creation. Nothing and no one is greater and or equal to Him in power, including Satan. Amen? Christ is now using His power in our lives through the same Holy Spirit that raised Him from the dead to raise people from spiritual death to spiritual life, as Ephesians 2, 1-3 through 3 would tell you. Verse 4 also that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy and with great love, saved you by His grace. So God is saving their souls in Christ. Christ is using this power in the world. The same Holy Spirit that raised Him from, from, from the dead is raising people from spiritual death to life. He's also using His power to govern and order the entire world according to His plan for the church, meaning there's not one single molecule on the face of this earth that is not ordered by God. It's not under His command. This is fascinating. And now, Jesus stands before God on behalf of those who love Him as a constant mediator of righteousness, pleading His blood over us. And as our empathetic Savior, meaning that He's not aloof to your problems. Meaning He knows. He knows the pain you feel. He, he hurts with you. He, he was tempted and tried in all the ways that you were tempted and tried. He experienced death and betrayal. Maybe in similar ways to what you've experienced. But He poured out Himself, gave up riches in heaven to become poor, endured the cross, Hebrews tells us, for the joy that was set before Him. The joy of saving humanity from sin. The joy of saving people. And now He fills you with His grace and with His power that you may fill the world as a representative of Him. Praise God for the work of Christ on our behalf. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us as we think about the next hundred years at New Life Community Church? What does this mean for us as you think about the next 20 years of your own faith, your own growth in love? Well, what it means is that because of the power of Christ at work in us, there should be within us a, a kind of joyful defiance to everything in the world that troubles us. You understand what I'm saying? There should be a joyful defiance to everything in the world that troubles us. 
because of what Christ is doing in us. We, we know who holds our future. And we know that He is, according to Romans 8.28, working all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Though we might get struck down, we are not destroyed. Though the storm comes in the middle of the night, the sun comes in the morning. This world and its troubles do not define you. Let me say it again. Everybody look at me. This world and its troubles do not define you. Your troubles, your sin, your pain do not define you. Christ defines you. The work of Christ specifically in your life defines you. Walk in boldness. Listen, it does not matter how much baggage you bring into this place. It doesn't matter how much baggage you bring in to the presence of the Lord today. But we're not here to stare at your baggage. I'm not even here to stare at my own baggage. Amen? I'm here to stare at Christ, the author and perfecter of my faith. That without Him, I would not be pursuing anything godly. Without Him, I would be out there in the world today chasing Lord knows what. But because of the work of Christ in my life, I'm here with you, having my heart refreshed by His Word and Your presence. That God is at work, and I can be sure of this. And so we don't look at our baggage, we look at Christ. We look at Him, the One whose power has raised us from death to life. So I say we pray continuously. Pray continuously that you would know God's power in that in that way, in such a way that you begin to live a life of joyful defiance to the everything else in this world. That though this world has a lot to offer, I don't want it. I want Christ. That we begin to live in such a way that we live like Jesus died for us. And that our future is incredibly bright. Because that. That's what's most true about us today. Amen? Would you stand to your feet this morning?